Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. You know, Julie, I take uh, the MARTA train here to the office. That's uh, public transportation. Heard of it. Here in Atlanta. Um, it's kind of limited. Looks, we just go north and south and east and west, and that's it. But yeah. uh, but it's public transportation. It's the train. It's uh, a melting pot of humanity, especially when it's hot. And uh, and I'm, I'm always seeing just kind of crazy stuff happening on the train. Mm-hmm. And occasionally it'll be crazy enough that I, there's a moment where I, I have to question, um, is, is what I'm seeing legitimate human activity is this uh, is this somebody that is addled that is in danger that is unhinged or is this performance art is this uh. is this somebody trying to make a statement about human nature uh, right here on the train because that is the thing about performance artists right like they mm-hmm. completely decenter you they make you stop and say is this person truly um, sort of out of their wits or do they have something to say? And that is the goal of the performance artist. Right. And as, as we'll discuss in this episode, too, at times it, it may seem that there is a gray line between madness and performance art. So um, Absolutely. With some, definitely some of the people we're going to cover, like to what extent are they going to um, explore these ideas of our own humanness, uh, our frailties, our power, um, by doing these these acts that sometimes they actually um, will do to their bodies. We'll talk about yeah, that. They, they are, that arguably no sane person would do. No, no. But they are interrogating what it is to be human, how we feel, how we think, um, how we act. What is morality? This is you know a question that we're always grappling with as humans. Um, and, and I really think the artists are, are these nice... Um, these nice additions to the scientific mind, to scientific researchers out there, because I think that they're doing the same thing that scientists are to some extent. They are, they're going through the process of, um, okay, here's this, here's a situation and how can I examine it and how can I peel away the layers to come to some sort of truth? What works and what doesn't? Um, you know, and to what ex- extent do we even have free will? This is a question that comes up a lot with neuroscientists. And I think this is uh, something that performance artists do really well is exploring this topic. Yeah, like you say, they, they, they drop truth bombs. Um, they do. To, to quote uh, Tracy Jordan. They, um, <laughs> uh, what, what strikes me about the performance artists is with a traditional artist, the, uh, the art they create is kind of uh, like kind of serves as a, a proxy. Uh, by which they deliver truth to you. Like there's truth in the art Mm -hmm. that the artist creates, and that is the means by which he or she gets the truth into your brain. Um, But the performance artist, there's no proxy. Like they are are becoming a vessel for that idea. They are becoming an idea, and they are forcing you to confront this idea Mm -hmm. in the flesh. Um, often, I mean, there are a lot of nude performance artists out there, and nudity is often plays into. I mean, because that is, uh, I mean, that's the thing itself. Um, there, there's a line in Shakespeare's um, King Lear, um, where Lear is, uh, you know, is it, it's a, one of these. It's out in the, you know, the middle of the storm. Lear is is mad. There's a there's a, a fool that, that's pretending to be mad, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and Lear says. Is man no more than this? Consider him well. Thou owest the worm no silk, the beast no hide, the sheep no wool, the cat no perfume. Ha! Here's three uns are sophisticated. Thou art the thing itself. 
unaccommodated man is no more but such a poor, bare, forked animal as thou art. Okay, and that's really interesting because it's about stripping away, right? Right. The, the thing. And that's what I think is interesting about performance art is it does peel away our particular constructs of realities. Mm-hmm. Some of them built on how we as a society work, right? All these sort of rules that uh, are either spoken or unspoken. Um, and I wanted to talk about how performance art is actually an offshoot of Dadaism okay. and even um, and, and futurists. Um, and it has a pretty good uh, it has a pretty good run here, um, it, it, particularly from the seventies on. Uh, Laurie Anderson is someone who is associated with performance art, and I just wanted to mention this because this is a good example of mm-hmm. of the type of performance art that began to be uh, performed. She did duets on ice, which she conducted in New York and other cities around the world, and it involved her playing the violin along with a recording while wearing ice skates with blades frozen into a block of ice. Now, Laurie Anderson, her husband. Uh, yes. Um. Satellite of Love. Satellite of, yes. Um, Lou Reed. Lou Reed, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Because uh, Anderson was also NASA's artist-in-residence for a short period of time. She is an amazing yeah. artist, um, and she has, I believe that she's even, uh, if, if I've got this right, I believe that she's even invented a couple of instruments as well. She's just a, a, an, yeah, amazing she's an amazing thinker. Yeah. And so that's what I think is really interesting about performance artists is that they're bringing all those critical thinking skills to the table, and like scientists, trying to figure out, like, you know, these causal relationships and what happens when you, you know, push the needle here and there. Um, her performance, you know, it, they're no nudity, nothing too crazy, mm-hmm. nothing blowing up, but um, her performance ended when the ice had melted away. Another artist that people might be familiar with is Karen Finley, and I uh, actually saw her in American Chestnut here in Atlanta, and that was very interesting. That was this interrogation of domesticity and a woman's role, and this was... Uh, after she had a child and she was actually using breast milk quite a bit to um, mm-hmm. express herself, I guess you could say. Uh, but one of the things that hallmarks of performance art, to me at least, is this lack of documentation, um, this, this symbol of the ephemeral nature of life, that everything is fleeting. And uh, I wanted to bring this little quote out from a book called The Family Fang. Okay. And yeah, this was one of yours on your summer reading list. One of my summer picks. Yeah. It's really good. It's there in some ways it's it didn't quite live up to what I what I thought it might be, but other ways it really surprised me. It is about a family of performance artists, the parents in particular. And um, here's a quote from the father talking to child B, I believe. That's his son. <laughs> um, he says, and I'm gonna have to bleep this out a little bit. Art happens when things effing Move around, he told them. Not when you freeze them in a gall darn block of ice. He would then take whatever item was closest to him, a glass or a tape recorder, and smash it against the wall. That was art, he said. And then he would pick up the pieces of the shattered object and hold them out for his children to inspect. This, he said, offering the remains of the broken thing, is not. Hmm. So again, it's this moment that's eliciting these certain emotions that I think are most central to performance art. Yeah, and you know, and another thing that comes to mind as, as we were researching this and as we're discussing it now, um, there's there's also this line between performance art and uh, just someone being a provocateur, you know? Yeah. Uh, or um, uh, you know, there's someone that's just doing something shocking for the sake of shocking it, shocking you. Um, and certainly, there are some uh, individuals out there who just do that and call it performance art mm-hmm. but uh but but when, when you're dealing with real performance art like performance art of a high caliber 
um, that there's there's that nugget of of message in there somewhere. Well, something that resonates a long time afterward. Like for instance, yeah. you could see uh, was it the naked cowboy in New York who plays on the side of the street with a guitar? Oh yeah, um, or, I don't know, I don't know if he's name. actually he's naked. Just a naked cowboy. Yeah, yeah. and th- I wouldn't call that performance art. But I'm just I'm kind of picking on him a little bit because I don't think he builds himself as a performance artist. Right. But some or people like, might go by and say, "Oh, that's so crazy." There's a you know six foot five dude who's pretty much naked and with a cowboy hat. Yeah. In the middle or, of Times Square. Or some of the various individuals in Atlanta that have become famous for like Baton Man, the Baton guy that would march around with the baton. Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like like that was I mean he wasn't pretending to be a performance artist he was just doing it because it made him happy. Yeah. Um, but I haven't seen him in a long time. Yeah, I, I haven't seen him recently either. I have, uh, you know, maybe he, uh, maybe he's good now. He doesn't need it. Yeah, maybe got yeah. that baton thing out. Yeah, um, that baton demon that we all have. Um, <laughs> and, and then there's the flatulus that you you uh, hit me to the other day. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, which I didn't even know was a, a real thing. I was uh, was reading a, a book. Uh, Marianne is sleeping. I believe was the name of it. Um, it was up for a Big Book Prize uh, about a decade back, and there was a a, a, a fart farting artist in the uh, the book. But the whole book is like cloaked in dreams and dreams within dreams. So I just assumed it was made up. Uh, but we discovered yesterday, yeah, that it is not there. There, this is a, a there's a grand tradition of individuals uh, using their um, their uh, their their musical uh, scatting with their abilities to meth- uh, methane, yeah. Actually, there's Mr. Mithlin is the name of one of the flatulists. Yeah, that was on like a uh, what? Uh, Britain's Got Talent, mm-hmm. a proud moment for the Empire. But uh, <laughs> but that's, so that is another example of something that is not quite performance art. Um, but uh, but let's get into start getting into some of the examples that we're going to cover in this this episode because we want to we want to hit some high points of performance art. Well, in, in some cases, you could call them. It's in the eye of the beholder. Some of these may right. be considered low points of performance art, depending on where you're coming from. But the but the idea is that the message was is received. There's a there's something worth talking about with all of the pieces we're going to discuss today. So uh, one of these gold standard uh, performance artists is Maria Abramovich, and uh, she has been doing performance art for forty something years. Um, one of her most provocative pieces that was called Rhythm O. And uh, I just want to mention, too, she's a New York-based Serbian uh, performance mm-hmm. artist. And she had a very interesting upbringing, too. I believe her parents were in the Army, both of them. Yeah. Very rigid. Um, There's a documentary out about her. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's gotten a lot of uh, media attention, uh, playing on HBO, I believe. Yes, it mm-hmm. is. And we'll talk about that in a moment, too. Um, that is called The Artist is Present. But Rhythm O was performed in 1974 in Studio Mora in Naples, and uh, Maria Obamovich adopted a really passive role with the audience as an active, uh, taking on an active role. Mm-hmm. And she put 72 objects around her on a table, anywhere from flowers and perfume to nails, a knife, a hammer, and a loaded gun. And she just, uh, she's just laid down, was very docile, she was naked, and then the members of the audience were allowed to use any of those objects on her in any way that they wished. And um, what she saw over this six-hour period is that people at first were pretty modest. Um, you know, they might pick up some perfume and put her on her. By the end, they were actually attacking her uh, with some of these objects. Yeah, like that didn't like one individual pointed the gun at her head. 
Yes, and another individual took it away. Mm-hmm. So what you're seeing here is the the audience became the show. Yeah, essentially. And she like the the artist as the piece becomes this this mirror in which we perceive ourselves. Yeah, she said, "What I learned was that if you leave it up to the audience, they can kill you." I felt really violated. They cut up my clothes, stuck rose thorns in my stomach. One person aimed the gun at my head, as you say, and another took it away. It created an aggressive atmosphere. After exactly six hours, as planned, I stood up and started walking toward the audience. Everyone ran away to escape an actual confrontation. Wow. So it was interesting because she had said, "Here are the rules. I'm going to sit here, but after six hours, I get up." Um, so it's interesting that people ran away, uh, sort of knowing that whatever this this false contract was now broken. And it made me think about um, objectification, which is something we do on a daily basis, whether or not we know it all the time, right? Uh-huh. For for a variety of reasons, into a variety of things and people. And uh, this is from The Atlantic. There's a study uh, that came out. It said, study proof that we sexually objectify women. And the question of the study... Because there needs to be proof of this, well, as opposed to everything it, around it. It's us. interesting, and it definitely relates back to, I think, what Abramovich was doing, mm-hmm. because um, there's this idea that, especially if the artist tells you, well, she didn't, you know explicitly tell them, hey, I'm an object. Mm-hmm. But you know, she did set the scene for that to happen to a certain extent to test the, the limits um, of, of what human behavior uh, was like in that instance. But anyway, th- there is this idea of like straight up um, objectification. Mm-hmm. Can we quantify it? And um, do we really look at women differently than we do men when it comes to this? So what they said is, is they okay, they said, oh, we're going to give... Everybody, men and women, um, in our study, images of average, fully clothed individuals, so no supermodels in bikinis, men or women, and these are going to quickly flash before the eyes of the participants. And then they'll be shown two side-by-side images that zoomed in on one, what they call sexual aspect. This could be like the midriff of a man or a woman. And they asked them to identify the version that hadn't been modified. And then the experiment was also reversed so that participants first looked at a specific part and then had to identify in the context of the entire body. So the test was actually designed to clue researchers in on whether or not participants were using what they call global or local cognitive processing while looking at the images. In other words, whether or not they perce- perceived individuals as whole mm-hmm. or in parts, hmm. which is fascinating to me. Right. So the results, regardless of gender, participants consistently recognize women's sexual body parts more easily when presented in isolation, and men's sexual body parts, on the other hand, were more memorable as part of their entire bodies. So what they're saying is that the cognitive process behind our perception of objects is the same that we use when looking at women, and both genders, both genders here, are guilty of taking in the parts instead of the whole, but when we look at men, we globally process them more fully as people. This is really interesting that we're talking about this during the Olympics because um, um, the you know, Summer Olympics start up and you inevitably start seeing all the, these pictures from uh, women's beach volleyball. Mm-hmm. Um, and and there's was, there was a great little uh, piece, I think it was a blog post that was a, uh, it was a great idea. I didn't think the, the execution was, was perfect, but um, it, it brought up the idea, what if all sports were photographed the way women's beach volleyball is photographed. Because we've all seen these images. Like, it's the only Olympic sport where it's okay for the photo spread of it to be women's hinders 
and uh, and midriffs, you know, w- without seeing their faces or yeah. or or necessarily even any sports action. Like you don't see you don't see people shooting uh, Greco-Roman wrestling like that, or um, or uh, you know, or, or various uh, Winter uh, Olympic sports. Uh, it's uh, it's it's like sexual objectification theater. Well, and this has been talked about a lot, um, you know, over the years, particularly mm-hmm. in terms of. Um, and, and like they never even go swimming. Why are they wearing swimsuits, right? I know, I know. Uh, particularly in gender theory, though, because that—that's what they call the male gaze, right? Like this idea that you know these these body parts are being isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was thinking about it in terms of like, well, this type, these different media[s] in which women have been represented have been in existence for thousands of years, right? But mm-hmm. more recently, in the ways that we know them, um, through television or through our computer screens. And I thought, well, if if we know, if we have evidence that um, a search engine like Google can change the way in which our memory works, mm-hmm. then is it possible that the way that women are portrayed in these different types of media could change the way that we think about men and women? Hmm. Um, as they say, like the cognitive processing of what a, a woman is or what a man is. Yeah. And so that's why I think it's interesting when you look at Maria Abramovich's work that that she is considering, or it seems to me in some of the work that she's doing, she's considering this idea of objectifying yourself or being objectified. Um, and I think that in her her most recent work, which is a retrospective of all of her work called The Artist is Present, she really kind of comes full circle with this idea of, well, let's, let's do, let's, let's focus more on um, acceptance Rather than and this this holistic putting together of the human form as opposed to the objectification, and if you look at this documentary called "The Artist Is Present," you'll see that she takes this retrospect of her work, which is fascinating, forty years worth. Mm-hmm. People go through the exhibit, and I believe this was at MoMA, right? Yes. Um, and this was earlier in this year. Between March, for for three months, this retrospective ran. So you go through this. Was it already gone when you were in New York? Yeah, Yeah. it was, unfortunately. Uh, But you go through, and at the very end, the artist herself, as she says, is present. She is sitting at first at a table for a couple of months. And you, as a participant, are allowed to come and sit across from her. And I don't know for how long um, you can, but. That's really a very simple idea, right? Yeah. Oh, the artist is present. I'm going to go and sit in front of her. But what we're talking about here, and this is this is when we say people are dedicated to their arts um, or to performance art and to really seeing this through, this concept. We're talking about a three-month period in which every single day she sat at that table and did not get up and did not eat and was absolutely silent, all told a 736-hour and 30-minute static silent piece. That is part of her performance art. It's just sitting there in and of itself. Yeah, like the the endurance involved there. Like, it's not just somebody getting up and on a, on a stage and being like, oh, I'm naked, it's art. No, this is somebody that's sitting there at a table for a grueling amount of time. I mean, I, I can't sit still for 15 minutes at a stretch most days. Uh, I, I can't, can't even imagine the Seven hours, seven hours, and individuals coming and sitting in front of you. Um, People were waiting for hours every day, by the way, just Mm -hmm. to do this. The reason is, is because she would, for every single person, she would, um, like before they sat down, she would look in her lap and then look up at them. And she said she wanted to give them the recognition they deserved as humans, as a whole human sitting in front of her. And she would say nothing and just stare in her eyes. Okay, have you ever stared into someone's eyes for, for 15 minutes straight 
before? Um, well, my, my wife, I guess. Um, I mean, no, I, not saying anything. Not saying anything. Hmm. Hmm. Fifteen minutes. No, no break in eye contact. No break in eye contact, and it, it also a stranger, right? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. That's uh, I may not have, you know, because I mean, generally, if, if it's somebody I I really know, there's going to be some discussion, and uh, I generally can't. I, I have trouble maintaining eye contact with most people who are not my wife. So, well, it, it's such a simple idea, but when mm-hmm. she did this in front of people, like they, even now, I have to look away from your eyes just because it's just the way, I'm, like my because they're piercing you, yeah. With their gray steel. Yeah, I start beca- like I look into someone's eyes and it's like, and then I start getting uncomfortable and I sort of look around. But yeah, I mean, so we're not really used to doing that, right? Yeah. We use our eyes to connect with other people, but certainly not for 15 minutes with a stranger. The, um, the, the sort of reactions were so incredible and powerful. People started crying. And the reason is because they're projecting all of their feelings onto her. She allowed herself to be a blank slate. Hmm. And so a lot of people felt absolutely like that they fell in love with her. Some people were angry with her. They felt judged or, or like they, they just, they're, they're, they're imagining the, the way that she's yeah. viewing them. Yeah. yeah. And um, and then this documentary is fascinating to watch this mm-hmm. happen. And people were, they just went nuts. And that's why she had people waiting for hours. Sometimes they would get there in the wee hours of the morning before the museum opened to stand in line to do this. Uh, there was a website called Maria Abramovich Made Me Cry uh, <laughs> that popped up. There were people who just started doing really disruptive things in the museum to get her attention. There, were, there was one woman who sat in front of her and took her top off because she wanted to try to be as raw and as vulnerable as Maria was. Hmm. So, again, it's such a simple concept, but here's this woman who has really 40 years done these incredible things, not with her own, not just with her body, but really with interacting with people. And to me, this really was a culmination of like ultimate connection with someone. I want, like the people who did disruptive things, uh, I mean, I wonder if they, I mean, were they familiar with her work enough to, to realize this is a lady who once... Uh, you know, sat there and had a loaded gun next to her and allowed members of the audience to, to point it at her. I'm not going to really disrupt her by taking my top off. I think it was uh, the way a I loud looked, noise is probably not going to cut it. Well, I think lady. someone had, I can't remember what they wrote on the papers, but they, t- they took a stack of like 500 papers and threw them from the top of the, of MoMA, which, you know, they have an open atrium. So mm-hmm. all these, um, papers flew down. And there was sort of a negative sentiment on that. I can't remember off the top of my head what it was, but to me, it was someone trying to take a bit of that power that she had. Yeah, yeah. It's like when, when I mean, just like when somebody messes with, uh, with, with like a someone who's on guard duty or something. You know, I mean, you're just trying to. I mean, it, it comes down to the whole, whole, like even things like graffiti, and I don't mean street art, but just straight up like tagging something. I mean, it's about proving that you have control over something else, and it's. Petty. Well, and at this point, too, in the exhibit, there was like this mania erupting yeah. over her. So it, it was just, it was crescendoing. Yeah. The, the nuttiness. But again, here's, that's a powerful work, right? That mm-hmm. is eliciting these feelings in people and connecting uh, with them on, on such an incredible level. Um, we should probably take a break and then yes. when we get back, we're going to talk about the crazy dude. Well, yes, yes, we're going to talk a little bit about about the crazy and the brilliant Steelheart. Yes, the man with the ear on his arm. 
All right, we're back. Uh, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, Steelart. This guy is uh, this guy's pretty incredible. Um, he's probably most well known for the ear on the arm deal, mm-hmm. which um, um, you know, unless you actually. Uh, this is one of those things that, like a lot of things, it gets picked up in the media and, and gets carried out. I think a lot of people just have surface-level information about it. Like, their basic level of the story is, oh, there's some crazy artist dude, and he had an ear sewn onto his arm, which isn't really the case at all. Um, right. But but what he did uh, is is really fascinating, and then it... it uh, it, it ties in with with some of the things we've discussed in the past about uh, about growing organs and uh, and you know where we're going uh, as far as uh, body modification, mm-hmm. cybernetic enhancement, um, uh, growing human tissue over scaffolding. I mean, uh, and all of these things are involved, uh, particularly in this piece, but but also in a lot of his work. Right, and we've talked about it more in the context of survival, either in space or just in trying to um, to help with disease. Or, you know, just even like organ replacement. Yeah. So, yeah, along comes this guy, and uh, he starts to get his thinking even more about this topic. Yeah, now, but before we got to, this was 2006 when he had the um, the ear done. Before yeah. that, he did a lot, of, like a lot of what he was doing was like he would do uh, body suspensions where he has uh, hooks in his skin and he's hanging. Uh, everyone, Which is a little like Jim Rose Circus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's And a lot of what he does... Um, I think I read a piece uh, that William Gibson uh, uh, wrote. Uh, it was actually the introduction to uh, uh, Steelark, uh, the monograph, which is a collection of his of his work, um, where he talked about it. Invo- his work as invoking like the sideshow geek, uh, you know, roadshow kind of vibe, and also, uh, but but also all these other disciplines to make some commentary about, uh, you know. Where we are with the people and how we interact with with technology and mm-hmm. uh, and ultimately where we're going, um, but uh, so yeah, he did a lot of that. He did a he did a piece where he um, swallowed a sculpture, yeah. a sculpture that kind of opens up in, in his stomach, and there was apparently a tricky moment where he wasn't sure he's was going to be able to remove it without surgery. Right, I mean he could have died from it. Yeah, yeah. Um, he did a piece called Ping Body, in which he wired himself to the internet. Um, by attaching electrodes to various muscles, which could then be activated by remote users. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, and this was all about uh, sensory experience and the idea that increasingly today and certainly in the future, but, uh, our sensory experience isn't bound to a particular location or bound by the body itself. Mm-hmm. You know, he's forcing you to, to think about uh, our modern sense experience as being this, uh, this international thing, you know? I mean, it comes back to, like, doing Google image searches of things, and how does that change our perception of the world? Um, But then the the ear idea came to him. And uh, the ear idea, apparently, he had it, you know, back in the the mid-90s, and spent 10 years tracking down people who had actually performed this surgery. I read somewhere that he said, if the technology would have been present then, I would have gone ahead and pursued it. Mm -hmm. But I had to wait until we could actually do this. Yeah. And, I mean, that's something to, to... to say uh, surgical technology hasn't really caught up with my art yet. Yeah, you know uh, that is that's generally considered the the uh, a statement of a of someone who is deeply uh, disturbed or someone who is is, uh, is deeply creative. And uh, and yeah, so 2006, the day finally arrives. Um, a bio compatible scaffold is surgically inserted into his left forearm, and it creates the shape of an ear. So it's okay? not yet it's not an ear per se. Right. It's 
you know, we mentioned uh, scaffoldings. We can grow tissue. We can use stem cells to grow tissues. We can grow heart tissue. Mm-hmm. But we need the shape of a heart around which to grow it. Um, and this is a scaffolding of an ear. Mm-hmm. It was just surgically implanted under the skin. And uh, and it t- actually took successive surgeries uh, in a in a six month bout uh, with uh, with uh, with infection. He had to take all these antibiotics, so it wasn't just a simple procedure of yeah. you know, sliding it in. Like this dude suffered for his art, um, and now has uh, an ear shape uh, in his arm. And th- but that's just sort of stage one. Right. Six years later, he's still adding to it, right? right. Like with his own adult stem cells. Yeah, because he wants to give it a lobe. It doesn't really have a proper lobe. Yeah. Because that's not really part of the scaffolding. Uh, the fleshy lobe is fleshy. Yeah. And, and lobey. Right. And so, and, and he's got an idea about that, too, because eventually he wants to insert a small microphone that connects to a wireless transmitter. Yes. And he says that in any Wi-Fi spot in, in the world, he'd be able to have that ear become Internet- Enabled, So he says if you're in San Francisco and I'm in London, you'll be able to listen in to what my ear is hearing wherever you are and wherever I am. And again, here's this idea of it's not just this person uh, doing this solo act. I mean, he's really trying to connect with humanity in this other way. Yeah, so we can reach a point where you can go to a website and you can listen through Steelark's arm ear. And uh, that's that's pretty amazing. Um, he apparently gets kind of touchy about how it's described. Yeah. Uh, as was uh, there's a, a Wired uh, magazine uh, interview with him in 2012, and this is how he describes the ear. He says, uh, "quote partially surgically constructed, partially cell grown, and this year it's been confirmed now we'll be doing the augmentation of the uh, helical part of the ear to make it more prominent, and we'll also grow a soft earlobe using my extracted adult stem cells." So, um, it's. Uh, yeah, it's 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 pretty mind-boggling, and uh, and this is not the the end. Uh, this is not his final piece by any stretch of the imagination. He has other plans for the future. Uh, so, and then I know it sounds ridiculous, probably to all the listeners, like ah, oh, this guy putting you know sculpting an ear so that it can then be wired. But you know, we talked about you know in a contact lenses of the gods, we mm-hmm. talked about augmenting our own reality, right? And using contact lenses that are essentially hooked up to the internet um, that can project certain images. So when you start to look at it in that way, it's not too far along. Of course, not all of us are going to graft tissue onto ourselves and wire it. Um, But he is exploring this idea of of different ways of communicating and perceiving the world. Yeah, and and once you get like if you it's. Performance art is, to a certain extent, like a like all art is kind of like a, a door to a room. Uh, and if you if you just look at the door, if you don't walk through that door. If you just at, if you just judge it at uh, face value and be like, ah, some crazy dude put an ear on his arm, or ah, somebody painted a bunch of colors on a canvas, you're not going to get anywhere. You're not going to engage with the piece. But once you get past that that level, like, you know, that kind of shock level, mm-hmm. you think about what you're perceiving and what this guy's doing and why he's doing it. Um, I mean, that's where the, the performance art really forces you to think about the the at times hard or or, or fascinating truth regarding uh, human nature. And or technology, technology in this case. Um, he actually said, I really like this quote, he said, artists can be early award warning systems, generators of contestable futures, possibilities that can be examined, evaluated, perhaps appropriated, often discarded. Well, that, that's a good way to look at it because we have all these technologies coming online and we often talk about that. How does it, how is that going to affect us 50 years out? So on and so forth. And here's this person who's extrapolated a lot of these ideas onto his own being. 
uh, William Gibson, uh, in his uh, forward to uh, to the Steelheart, the, the monograph, he talked about meeting him for the first time. And there's this, this great little uh, uh, bit I wanted to read from that. Gibson, uh, Gibson, of course, is the author of Neuromancer and uh, more recently books such as uh, Pattern Recognition, which, uh, you know, all of his books deal with technology and, and how humans are changed and how we interfere and uh, in, uh, involve ourselves with technology. Gibson says, I imagine now that I was watching Steelark in performance with his robotic third arm, but what I recall experiencing was a vision of some absolute chimera at the heart of a labyrinth of breathtaking complexity. I sense that the important thing uh, wasn't uh, the entity Stilark evoked, but the labyrinth that the creature's manifestation suggested, which I I thought was a nice way of summing it up. It's not so much look at this freak with a third arm or look Mm -hmm. at this freak with an ear on his his arm. No, this is uh, like think of the world that sort of flows out from this piece. Uh, in the same way that, um, uh, you know, a lot of this performance art is about forcing the viewer to think about themselves. Uh, he forces the viewer to think about the world that we've created for ourselves. Yeah, and it appears that he doesn't have an opinion one way or the other in terms of this sort of uh, technological augmenting of his body and, you know, making a statement about dystopian future versus utopian future. Right. Um, and he doesn't think of himself yeah, much as, of himself a as a futurist. and. Uh, and, and Gibson was rather dismissive of the, he's like, I don't think he's, he's talking about the future at all. So. No, no, he says, and in fact, and he says on the point, um, he says, I don't think that machines will take over at some imagined point in time a singularity. I think it will be much more complex. There will be multiple and alternate possibilities that will be constantly generated. This is another perspective on that. As for the future, uh, Steelike has a couple of uh, projects planned. Just going to mention them oh, real yeah, quick yeah. here. Um, first, he wants to engineer a, quote, insect-like microbot that will climb into his mouth, uh, unquote. Uh, and it's uh, in this will have a webcam and a uh, LED light. It, it reminds one of like the, the, like the mermaid, the endoscopic cameras that we've mm-hmm. uh, talked about in previous episodes. Well, he wants to, he is taking the artistic um, approach with this technology, which is fascinating. And then he also wants to grow a microbial second skin. Uh, and this would involve covering his body with a layer of, uh, of agar, which is that... Right. Uh, that clear uh, stuff you see in petri dishes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the medium that helps grow the culture. Yeah, we yeah. had some of this when we did the uh, the video series. We did. Yeah, I, if I'd known, we should have ordered more of it, and I could have slathered myself with it and grown <laughs> more skin. Uh, but no, he would be uh, you know, growing a skin of microbes, uh, and uh, and he has a, he has some fantastic ideas about what that would mean and, and all, and so we'll just see how that unfolds. Isn't he going to encase himself for like three days in it or something, and then he's going to discard it but allow it to continue to grow? Grow yes. uh, matter on it. Yes, microbial I matter. So. Um, I want one of those. <laughs> Although I, I think that if I did, if I wore microbial second skin all the time, I wouldn't get the benefit, of course, of my own uh, good microbes hanging out. Well, you know, comes back to Marta. I feel like I have encountered individuals <laughs> on the train who have grown a microbial second skin, but they were not performance artists. All right, uh, let's shift over. Now that we have this kind of foundation with a couple of artists who have, I really think set the bar here yeah, <laughs> in terms of dedication mm-hmm. and, and big themes, uh, let's tick off a couple others. There's uh, Guillermo uh, Guillermo Vargas. Yes, Costa Rican. Mm-hmm. And uh, this guy uh, is, is rather controversial. And this is the guy I was definitely thinking of when we were talking about um, the highs, but also potentially the lows, the lows of uh, performance art. Um, tell us about his piece with the dog. Okay, this was um, in Nicaragua in 2007 at a gallery. Which, which neighbors? Um, Costa Rica. Costa Rica. Um, 
and uh, it was at a gallery there, and it featured um, a dog tied to a wall with a short length of rope, and the words "Eros loque, lis, you are what you read" were written on the wall with dog food. Um, so, okay, a really what we're emaciated here, dog too, emaciated a really dog, rough looking street dog that is not being fed, right? And yet there is dog food around it. So it caused a ton of controversy, um, yeah. and it, especially when it was reported that the dog actually died of starvation. Yeah. So let's, like I said earlier, art has, is this doorway into this room of truth and thought and and contemplation and confrontation. At the, at the, the door level to this piece, it's it's pretty horrendous, right? Like this dude brought in a dog, tied it up, intentionally didn't feed it, and it died. But, but the audience is also part the, of this. But the, yeah, the audience is present. The um, <laughs> And uh, did the audience feed the dog? No. According to the gallery director, he said that uh, during the exhibition, uh, the, he didn't have any visitor that tried to free the dog, feed it, or call the police. Yeah. And, and the other part of the statement here, too, is everyone gets super up in arms. Oh, oh my God, a, a, a dog starved to death, and this guy just let it happen. But that's a dog he got off the street, where there are all these other dogs starving on a daily basis, where there are humans starving, and uh, and that is not the point of outrage. The outrage is that it took place uh, there as performance art. Right, right. But, I mean, she could take his stance and say that what what the art piece was really about was a diffusion of responsibility. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about this in the bystander effect before. Yeah. And uh, there have been a ton of uh, studies carried out to say that when people get together and they see, you know, atrocities or they see something that seems wrongheaded, we don't always uh, fly to the best natures of our beings, right? Um, that we sometimes shirk responsibility. And uh, social psychologists John Darley and Bib Latane concluded that the larger number of people who witness something at a scene of emergency or crime, for instance, the lower probability that an individual will act. So we've seen this in a couple of different ways. There's something called pluralistic ignorance, and this is a collective inaction by a group because you kind of look to the other person for a cue. Yeah. And if the other person seems like, well, no, it's not that serious, then nobody else thinks it's that serious. Comedian uh, Louis C.K., has some great bits about this uh, in his stand-up, but also on the show, Louis, mm-hmm. uh, that involve like walking past people on the streets of New York who are in yeah. really bad shape, and having to, and then being there with somebody who's either an outsider uh, that's visiting New York yeah. or somebody who's just in a maybe has a different state of mind. This is. Does he, you know, let's help this guy. Does he need help? And Louis's like, yeah, he, he needs your help more than anything, but we just don't do that. Yeah, I think it was uh, an example was like a, I want to say like a teenager or something. Yeah. That had never been to the city before mm-hmm. and was trying to help a homeless person. He was like, oh, honey, we don't do that. Yeah. And to your point, like, yeah, that person does need all the help in the world, but we just don't do that. Um, and that's this idea, too, the diffusion of responsibility. Somebody else is in charge or somebody else um, may be better to deal, able to uh, better deal with us than you or I. Yeah. Uh, so that is why that piece is interesting. It's it's awful. Yeah. Yeah. Like know? we are not forgiving the, you know. It was Certainly. hard for me to yeah. research it, to be quite honest. It's called uh, Exposition Number One, in case anybody wants to look into it further. But um, it's definitely a, a commentary on society. Yeah, and uh, uh, like when when I was in Costa Rica, I visited the the art museum um, there, and uh, there was there were I don't I do not remember there being a dog tied up. So, but there was a lot of fine modern um, art there. So, um, 
because it bit it by that time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but let it let it be known that Costa, Costa Rica has a lot of very talented artists who uh, don't have don't harm dogs. Yeah, and this was in Nicaragua pieces. anyway. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. where uh, it's also pointed out that there were no laws in Nicaragua against what he did, so he wasn't actually breaking the law. Per right. Se. Right. I'm not sure that's something you could do in the United States. Right. Uh, Yeah, yeah. definitely not. All right. So Damien Hurst is another person we'd like to talk about. A lot of people are familiar with him, um, particularly with some of the formaldehyde preserved carcasses or animals that he's actually done in the past. Oh, like the big shark, the uh, 1991 piece, The Physical Impossibility of Death in the Mind of Someone Living. Uh, which is th- like this big formaldehyde tank, sort of three divisions. Well, it's not really three divisions, but it has like they're looking at it. It looks like there are three sections to it. Yeah. And there's this giant shark in there, and uh, like it was an actual shark that he commissioned somebody to catch. That was uh, his his only um, mandate on it was it needs to be big enough to eat somebody, because that's sort of the, that's the idea of the shark as a manifestation of, of human mortality. Here is something in the food. A chain, something out there in the world big enough to eat you yeah, and, and perfectly capable of carrying it out. And here it is, uh, completely vulnerable, rendered mm-hmm. in front of you, right? He's yeah. it's sort of obsessed with death and, uh, and uh, I guess, you know, putrefaction, preservation. Um, what I've seen before is mother and child divided. I've, I saw the, the Tate Gallery, and that is a calf and its mother that are bisected. Mm-hmm. And so they're in four different formaldehyde cubes and you can walk through them and you can actually see uh, the bisection the inside of, uh, of of their guts and so on yeah and sort of that's kind of a play to mother and calf divided yeah. of course not everything he does involves dead animals um, there he also no. has some wonderful sculpture there's in fact one of my favorite sculpture pieces which I, I've never actually seen in person but I've seen plenty of great photographs of it uh, his 2005 piece virgin mother um, if I can find, I'll either include a link or an embedded picture of this uh, when we do the, the, the blog post that goes with this episode, because it's just beautiful. It's painted bronze, and it's uh, it's uh, it's like it's there's kind of like a half uh, half of it is like an anatomical dissection mm-hmm. of, uh, of of a pregnant woman, and then the other half um, is uh, is fleshed, and it's uh, it's just just a beautiful piece of art. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of, his rendering is no doubt. There, there's a, a lot to to celebrate in terms of that. Yeah, uh, it's not really a sculpture. Yeah, so his, his uh, he has the skill. It's not like he's one of these guys that's just like here's a dead shark. It is art. Look at it. Yeah, you know. I mean, yeah. you know, he, there's a lot more going on here. Uh, but I do want to point out that he submitted plans for his ninety-seven thousand foot uh, what he calls art plant. Okay. A square foot. Okay, it's ninety-seven thousand square feet of of plant in rendering these animals. He actually has uh, a formaldehyde studio built into this plant and, like, hooks where all the carcasses hang. Wow. So, I mean, he's still obviously interested in this. Um, but this is actually animal carcasses, uh, 67-foot sculptures. There's another one called the Angel of the West that he's trying to get done right now. Um, this is actually not what we're talking about. We want to talk about this skull oh, that yes. is bedazzled beyond bedazzlement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's uh, covered in diamonds. Yes, and it's a plastum cast of uh, a real human skull with real teeth encrusted with 8,601 diamonds. And that totals something like at the time 14 million pounds, Mm -hmm. right? And uh, it is rumored that he sold the piece to a conglomerate um, and that it's, I think he sold it for like 50 million pounds. Wow. 
But I mean, it's we don't even know if it'll be exhibited again. This is yeah. such an incredible piece, and and so very expensive. Uh, if you look at it, uh, you I mean, you will be dazzled by. It. You can't not be dazzled by it. And Hearst himself said he was really surprised by how it came out because he really wanted to interrogate death and, and look at it um, in a different light. And he said that he thinks that there's more of a positive spin to the skull, that there's it's like the glory of death as opposed to like death as we always think of as the Grim Reaper. Yeah, like a fabulous death. A fa- yeah. <laughs> yes, it is a fabulous. Well, it looks as though it's awesome. Yeah. When you look at that, oh, death, that's great. Get bedazzled. Um, yeah, he's certainly more of a multimedia um, artist. Like, uh, there's some performance aspects to his work, mm-hmm. but then again, some of it is more traditional sculpture um, as well. Yeah. And there were people who said, like, you know, there's a comment on this, too, because of blood diamonds um, and, and the mining practices. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another aspect that you can take away from it. To me, I think, is this like the ultimate totem of denial of, like, of our own mortality? That you dress up death. But in any case, you guys should definitely go and Google it. It's worth a look. Yeah. And again, I'll, tr- I'll try to include uh, an embedded image or uh, at least a link to it. So, like a lot of the pieces we're discussing here, so you will be able to handily uh, seek them out when you listen to this podcast. Okay. We have one more artist that we want to discuss here, and that is Michael Landy. Yes. Not Michael Landon. Not Michael Landon. <laughs> though, though his performances were, were gold. They were. Yeah. I will never forget Pa. Um, all right, so in 2001, this installation artist spent two weeks destroying all of his worldly possessions. Uh, we're talking about 7,000 or more, mm-hmm. 7,000 and change objects, uh, including like cooking utensils, uh, but also original works by uh, Damien Hirst. Wow, yeah, okay. like I, things that, beyond just merely stuff, but like things that... that, that, that this is the only one that exists. Yeah, yeah. you're like, oh, that's $20,000? Well, I'll, I'll burn it. Um, and uh, it, it, what else? Uh, family photos, his sob, his car. Mm-hmm. And uh, this, I think, from an, if I read this right, from an article, was an idea he had after one of his art installations in 1994 was thrown away. Do you know of this? Oh, this is the one, yes, where it, uh, the, the art installation itself resembled garbage. Yes, and not I've not in a like I told you about when I went to London and I was on the uh, the ferry and we uh, the ferry uh, tour guide was this Cockney gentleman and he was talking about the uh, the Museum of Modern Art there in London. He was like pointing. Oh to yeah. it. it's like it's like oh you can go over there, but they it's just a bunch of rubbish. I went in there and I saw a piece and I was like oh I can throw a, a piece of cotton in the garbage. Oh, this makes a mart, you know. And he's he's like just really ragging on it. But that's exact, exactly that what is this exactly was. why this was garbage. Uh, as art, but then was interpreted by a janitor as garbage. And, and thrown away. And thrown away. Right. And so I think that this is what spurred him on to say, huh, what if, you know, I just lost this installation mm-hmm. of garbage. What what if I turn this to my own life? What would happen to me? Right. Um, if all my worldly possessions were just uh, smashed to smithereens. It's like it reminds one of the story of Vincent van Gogh having to burn his paintings for warmth on the balcony. Yeah. Know? Um, I mean, there's just something. I mean, and, and also brings to mind um, uh, like uh, Tibetan monks uh, creating these mandalas out of sand and then and then uh, destroying them. There's there's something about. I mean, it's creation and destruction. The the the, the two primal forces in life uh, displayed there. I mean, there's that's the core of 
of art right there. Right. Within every man sleeps the great destroyer, right? And mm-hmm. he, he took that. I mean, in literally yeah. destroyed everything. And not everybody could say they could do that, right? Um, and then there's this idea of, of personhood that we talked about, like your identity being bound up with things. Yeah. And the sort of liberation from that. From stuff. From yeah. stuff, man. So, all right, that's a, that's a little uh, poo-poo platter of, yeah. of artists in this um, field. Cool. Well, speaking of uh, two quick notes, um, speaking of poo-poo platter, just want to mention real quick, <laughs> if you downloaded an early version of our um, fecal fossil episode, there was a little bit where I was talking about owl pellets, and uh, I got caught up in the moment and talked about them coming out of an owl's rear instead of an owl's face. Pellets are, of course, vomit. We uh, subsequently edited that part out because it's just like a quick, um, you know, couple of minute uh, deal where I started rambling about it uh, unplanned. And uh, uh, obviously, pellets come out of an owl's mouth. It is vomit. But uh, I, something I, you know very well, since you have yeah, I, sought I, these pellets I, I have for more than a year. And I did a blog post about it. So I don't know why I got a wires crossed in my head or something on that one. But if you download a, uh, the current version of it, that uh, error is absent. Um, and let's see if we have a quick listener mail. Call over the robot real quick. All right. Uh, our listener Murphy from Hawaii uh, writes in and says, Hey, Robert and Julie, just listen to your podcast on screaming. I recently graduated from high school, and um, I got to love it. Being out, I mean. The last few years of my high school uh, caused me to become very stressed, and I would occasionally have screaming fits. I would get all wound up over a day or so, start babbling, and then it would finally scream. I would belt out around four or seven good screams, rest, and I would feel better afterwards. While screaming can be a good release every once in a while, I've learned to avoid such dramatic incidences by reacting to things that bother me uh, when they bother me. This is becoming ramble-esque. Goodbye, goodbye, goodbye. Aloha. Murphy of Hawaii. So. All right. Yeah. Well, you know, that was, we were hearing from the heart there on Murphy. Um, I found it interesting that he used the goodbyes, but then the aloha, which means goodbye. Antelope, right? I know, and I was just trying to make a joke like about mahi mahi in my head, but it didn't quite come together. Yeah. Well, there you go. Someone who's using uh, really some scream therapy of their own to uh, deal with their uh, issues. Well, especially in high school, right? That's, yeah. 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 Who? Who? Obvious. Uh, if, if you're not screaming in high school, then you're probably a jerk. I don't know. I mean, it's like if you're if you're not suffering, you're probably causing other people to suffer. That's kind of my take. Unless you go to a great high school. Uh, anyway, uh, do you go to a great high school? Do you have thoughts on screaming? But more to the point, do you have some thoughts on performance art? Yeah, if you've ever, if you've seen some great performance art out there in person, um, if you're familiar, a big fan of a performance artist that we didn't mention on the podcast, but you think you know you'd really like to get their story out on the podcast, uh, let us know. Are you a performance artist? That would be great as well. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook, where we are stuff to blow your mind. And on Twitter, you'll find us under the handle Blow the Mind. And you can also drop us a line at BlowTheMind at Discovery.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 